man, camera, camera, TV. Give us that again. Can you do that again? Can you go person, camera, TV, TV. Go back to, go that, back question. to that question and repeat them. Can you do it? And you go, and you go, person, person, woman, woman, man, man, camera, TV. Camera, TV. They say, they say, that's amazing. Person, person, woman, woman, man, man, camera, camera, TV. Aerial view live end times talk radio. Friday, 6 p.m. Eastern time. Call seven six zero four two two five five two eight. The pound. NYC.com. You have a podcast. Cool. Oh yeah, I invented them. Suicide. I have an idea now. First name, Mr. Billy, last name, G. 
I just hope this man realizes that being able to communicate with people all over the world carries a serious responsibility. Come on, baby. Show the man your power, baby. Blast them! Give him some of that tone! Showtime! Don't you smile, blow me kiss for this one. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen of the radio audience. A very auspicious beginning. Sure, the talk show. You know, people phone in and make a beef. Oh, what about whatever happens to bug you? That's what you talk about. Sometimes he agrees with the caller, other times he sets him straight. I was wondering if this was the same Chris T who does um, the radio show. Um, Because if it is, I think your show's really great. Um, But if it isn't, um, I'm sorry to have bothered you. I drink your milkshake. I drink it up. Because you're bastard people. So they say, could you repeat that? Those words. But of course you must realize they come from a man who's gone mad with depression. Unfortunately, it seems to happen to some of our greatest geniuses. People like Oppenheimer, Schweitzer, Boxcar Willie. And that's why today we're especially sad to announce that Chris has in fact been found certifiably depressed. That sounds about right. That would fit in with the general theme of the times. I mean, if you're not depressed right now, ladies and gentlemen, then you're not paying attention. If you're not depressed right now, you're living in an alternate reality. And I can't help you. I can only help those who are living in this reality. Not the alternate reality where satanic pedophiles are eating babies out in Hollywood. Oh my god. Sweet Tea and I watched this thing on Frontline and I just, I love Frontline mainly because of that announcer dude. They got the best announcer in there. I don't know what the hell that guy's name is but he makes everything sound scary as shit. And they did a whole thing on Alex Jones and Donald Trump. It was a July 28th episode. Look for it on the PBS.com. By the way, this is Aerial View on the HoundNYC.com. Here every Friday, 6 p.m. Eastern Time, and then replays on Tuesdays at 6 p.m. Eastern Time as well. And in between, it becomes a podcast available on Apple Podcasts and Google Play and Spotify and Stitcher. And soon... Amazon and Audible, by extension. And the Hound Howls are also available as podcasts at uh, Apple Podcasts and Google Play. The Hound Howl, live every Sunday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time. The Hound is back, baby. 
and then crashing the party. Mark and Miriam, the doo-wop chop shop of the air every Sunday at 5 p.m. You got those doo-wops on vinyl? Which reminds me, over at Norton Records, they're running a really big sale. Their big August sale, 20% off store-wide at Norton.com. Fuck it. Let's help our friends. What are we doing this for if we can't help our friends? Go and buy some records. Also, Earwax Records. Go and buy some records from them in Williamsburg in person, safely, because of the COVID. Or you can do so online. I think it's just earwaxrecords.com. There's still Hound t-shirts at the houndnyc.com slash shop. Lots of ladies cuts, because everybody bought the unisex. And there may be a resupply soon, too. Because we're an increasingly obese nation, we're out of the XLs. But don't worry, more coming soon. Also at thehoundnyc.com slash shop. Aerial view lighters, new old stock aerial view lighters. Not Zippos, but a pretty good imitation. Pretty good. Uh, These were produced between 2014 and 2016 for uh, my marathon shows on WFMU, where I was once welcomed. I mean, I showed up down there in 1986. I did go a good 30 years. And, you know, that's plenty, man. That's plenty of time. You don't want me back there? Fuck you. That's what I say. Good. You gatekeepers, you don't want me in there? Good. I'll do my own show right here on thehoundnyc.com. Let's check and see, by the way, how many people are listening tonight. Are you ready for the tally? Oh, if only I had a drum roll. It's a tight group of nine. Nine people listening to the show live. Now, ordinarily, you would not reveal that because it's, it's somewhat pathetic. But as I grow more stoic, or try to in my increasing years, as I grow more Buddhist, or try to in my increasing years, I, I try to lose my ego. What little ego I have. Because, you know, I was on the bottom rung of showbiz for a while. I did a show on trucking radio for a dozen years. And I was good at it. I talked to famous people every day. Actors and athletes and authors and... Just plain old celebrities. Not even sure why they were famous. Not sure I ever interviewed an influencer. But even dogs. Even that dog from The Artist, for God's sakes, came in. And they paid me. They paid me to do it. And then they fired me because of Donald Trump. That leads me to the first thing that I would like to get to tonight. And that's something I uh, I put up there on Facebook. But later on in the show, I'm going to double down on the live reading that I did, uh, what was it, last week? Story about Florida. Been working on these short stories about the five times I've been to Florida. Guess what it's called, Raj? It's called Florida Five Times. Roger, you want to come up here? Roger the cat has joined me in the studio. Roger has a new little baby brother, Martin, newest member of the family. Roger, come here. You want to come over here? He's just sitting there crying at me, Roger. 
And if I try to pick him up, he'll just, he won't want it. So screw it. Roger, if you want to come on up here, come on up. If you want to jump up, I don't care. We got nine people listening, Roger. Like, it matters. Although I hope more of you are listening to the podcast. But I was saying that I'm trying to lose my ego because there's, there's times during the day I'll, I'll see a story about somebody with a podcast. There'll be a glowing story in the Times about this person's podcast and what a wonderful interviewer they are and how sensitive and empathetic they are and great talent they are. Or I'll see somebody else on Facebook praising somebody I know who does a radio show and I'll think, I, I, I think I do better radio than that person. I think. I think I'm better at it. I think I'm a little more talented. I mean, they, they paid me for a dozen years professionally to do it. Damn. Do a talk show. Or I'll think, why is that person getting all that attention? How come they, they never write an article about me? What about me? When's it my time? And then I'll laugh. <laughs> I'll laugh to myself. You're being ridiculous, I'll say. Raj. Come here. Shit or get off the pot. What are you doing? Come here. You can't just sit there and cry at me, Raj. Jump up on the table. Just don't... He already did. He already jumped on the keyboard and triggered something. I don't know what. If you start hearing something that's strange, well, that could just be this show. But you know what I mean. Something I didn't mean to do. I got three keyboards up here, Raj. You're stepping on all of them. This show is about to go into crapper because of a... Male orange tabby cat. It's always a male orange tabby, whether it's Garfield or... Who was the other one? Why can't I think of any other? Morris. There's a few more, Rog. You should have been famous, too, but... As far as I can tell, Roger the Cat... Engineer, I should call him. Has no ego, unlike me. I still keep wondering... When are they going to notice how, how great I am? When are they going to notice... And then I think, wait, you don't think you're that great? What are you talking about? <laughs> you don't think you're that great. Maybe that's the problem. I don't know. Because I know a lot of people who are good at like banging their own drums or they're good at getting themselves some, some write-up somewhere. Or they're good at getting themselves some attention. And really, for how long? How long does it last? Is it, does it really bring them any satisfaction? Any, does it make them feel better? I guess. I guess up to a certain point, right? But we, we were watching a little bit of the George Harrison documentary that Martin Scorsese directed. I, we've seen it before. By the way, the number here is 760-422-5528. Just in case you want to give a call, 760-I-CALL-AV, that number in Palm Springs, California where it's probably 111 degrees. Raj, Raj is looking at me with such love. I mean, really. Thank you, Raj. See, Roger thinks I'm famous. <laughs> but we're watching the George Harrison documentary directed by Martin Scorsese that came out a few years ago. It popped up recently on some streaming service we use. And 
just to kill some time before something else came on. We started watching it, and I, I had forgotten. You know, it's 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 very well done. It's really good. If you haven't seen it, if you've never seen it, seek it out. It's uh, I forget what the hell it's called. All things must pass, or some goddamn George Harrison song title. And and Ringo was on there, and, and Ringo was talking about like when the Beatles became really famous and what a pain in the ass it became. That that that, that it. At first, it was cool, and he liked it, and you get a better seat at a restaurant, and people recognize you, but then you just wish it would stop. So, on my journey to fame, I'm going to pretend that I'm already at that point, where I just wish it would stop, that I'm so famous, I wish it would just stop. People pestering me and telling me how great I am and asking me for uh, pictures and autographs and stuff. Maybe that'll help. But yeah, ego, why have ego, really? I mean, I know that I'm good. I know I said earlier that thing about, you don't think you're great. But I think at least I'm good. I'm good at this. I'm good at radio. Pretty good writer. And that reminds me, uh, second half of the program tonight, a, an original short story from me. One of my Florida short stories. Florida five times. This will concern the second visit to the Sunshine State. And uh, I don't know if I'll ever be back, frankly, to Florida. There's no reason for me to go there that I can think of. There's nobody I know that lives there. There's nothing there I want to do or see. Maybe if my cousin moves down there, he keeps threatening. To go down to Florida, he wants to live on a boat. I'm like, good luck with that. Just wait till hurricane season rolls in. So, yeah, I don't know. But I've been five times to Florida. And each time was a real good object lesson in why I don't like Florida. I'm sorry to anybody uh, who may be listening... Who lives in Florida? But what are the odds of that? Let's check in and see if the numbers have ticked up at all. How many? No, they ticked down. We lost a listener. Eight people listening. Where's the sad trombone? I want somebody to use their fucking head and give me my sad trombone. Is Don on the phone? And where are the pictures I asked for? Motherfucker's got me coming out of an upbeat song. I gotta do a death dedication. Sorry, Roger. Roger's getting really upset when I do that. So yeah, the stoic thing and the Buddhist thing. The the losing the ego as the, the you know, taking the middle way as the Buddhists talk about. Which might be a good segue into my next thing. Finding myself arguing with people on the social media. Mainly Facebook. I mean that's where we all are. Even though we hate it, let's face it. Even though it sucks. But that's where we're exchanging ideas. And, and, and as soon as Kamala Harris was announced as, as Joe Biden's VP, all these people that I'm friends with on Facebook started weighing in with their weeping and their whining and their crybaby snowflake bullshit about how, you know, the meme, we're up top, it's got... 
Bernie Sanders and AOC standing side by side. And it says, this is what I ordered. And then down below, it's got Biden and Harris. And it says, this is what I got. Yeah. I'm like, fuck you, fuck you, fuck you. So uh, before we get to my Florida short story, we have just enough time for me to write, uh, write, to read this thing that I wrote that I put on Facebook. So incensed was I. I sat down and I just started typing, typing, typing. And the next thing I know, I had this. And uh, in addition to losing my ego and thinking all is in permanence and uh, what else am I trying to do? Uh, be here now. You know, that shit. And then uh, learn my lessons from the Stoics about how uh, this too shall pass. I guess that's a George Harrison lesson, too. Uh, how you cannot choose events. You can only... What, how does it go? You can't... Something like that. You can't... It's not up to you what happens. It's up to you how you respond to what happens. Aha! That's what I meant to say. Yeah, like, that's an easy one to learn. You try, you try, you try, and then... You turn around and you realize you're living through a pandemic and we're America, so we do stupid right. We're so fucking stupid, it's unbelievable. We're so stupid, we believe, again, that satanic pedophiles are eating babies somewhere in Hollywood or D.C. or all over the country. These assholes, these QAnon assholes, they're so virulent. Uh, one of them, it looks like it's gonna. this woman's going to end up in the 14th Congressional District in, in Georgia, they voted in some QAnon conspiracist. And then they hijacked the hashtag Save the Children, which is a legitimate campaign to end child trafficking. Much of which is sex trafficking. And these assholes hijacked that hashtag to advance their nonsensical, completely made up, totally bogus, utter bullshit conspiracy theory about how Donald Trump was put in place by the military to save America from satanic pedophiles eating babies in Hollywood. I'm, I'm thinking probably in the Hollywood Hills or maybe the Hollywood Dell or maybe Mulholland Drive. Maybe the Sunset Strip. I don't know. Woodland Hills. Maybe they're in Topanga somewhere. Malibu? Maybe. Somewhere. I guess none of those are Hollywood. So yeah, I wrote this thing. And I'm going to read this thing. And then we have a short story. I got to work my way up. to This is me stretching my vocal cords. Working on the old vocal cords. You're listening to Aerial View with me, Chris T. And uh, this is thehoundnyc.com. And I, I began this with a quote from an Elvis Costello song, one of my all-time favorites. I don't know how much more of this I can take. She's filing her nails while they're dragging the lake. Let me begin by saying I like you all. Why else would we be friends? One of us reached out, the other accepted Boom. Done. Friends. Whether you know me, IRL, or we met via WFMU, or Sirius XM, or Coney Island, or Waitstock, we're now in each other's orbits. 
And it's a groovy situation. I believe in community, even, especially, now, virtual communities. Some of you I've known since I was 12, others just a few months, and yet there's much you probably don't know about me. No, not the fact I met Mel Blanc when I was a kid or once told Terry Bradshaw to get out of my way as part of my job. Those are trivialities. I'm talking about the down deep stuff, who I am at my core. So let me fill in some blanks. I was born in Amityville on Long Island, grew up two towns east in Lindenhurst, a quote, blue collar hamlet, unquote. It was not diverse or inclusive and no doubt redlining occurred. But I was wholly unaware of such things while growing up. The world was the world and I had very little to do with its shape. I could barely form my own. I was too busy trying to survive my family. When I first heard the word provincial, it explained much of what I experienced on Long Island. I would add insular. Breaking free of all that began with punk rock. Sure, Led Zeppelin was my favorite band as that 8-track bootleg of physical graffiti I repeatedly repaired with scotch tape will attest. To this day, when I listen to that album, I expect huge chunks to be missing. But the Sex Pistols, the Clash, the Ramones, etc. taught me to question authority and do it yourself. So my friend Mike and I did both. We co-founded the Nihilistics. I came up with the name. And we're soon a part of the burgeoning NYHC scene, coming into contact with the socially conscious who fueled my dawning political awareness. That piece of garbage, Ronald Reagan helped. I learned how unjust and unfair life is if you aren't the quote, right, unquote, gender, color, sexual orientation, etc. Though I hadn't been born into money and struggled with depression, self-hatred and the need to support myself, I felt the requisite guilt for undue advantages I'd unknowingly been handed. Unfortunately, when it came to the band, I might have been the only one. When we parted ways, I moved to New Jersey and met the Nicastro family, Doris, Andy, and Judy. They further opened my eyes to the way the world actually works, how it's a constant struggle to preserve democracy and rise above oppression. Getting involved with WFMU was another step away from the closed, fearful minds I'd known in Suffolk County. Whether volunteering, sending money, or speaking out on the air, I did what I thought was right, what would help America pursue that more perfect union. It wasn't until I'd been doing trucking radio for years, talking daily with the bluest of the blue-collar professionals, that I'd been referred to on air as a libtard. What a cute word. Let's drill down on that, shall we? Lib from liberal, tard from retard. A word no one with a modicum of restraint, sense, or empathy would use in public unless they were referring to the timing of spark in an internal combustion engine. It was a shock to me to be hit with this Rush Limbaughism. No wonder he got that Presidential Medal of Freedom. Because of the place I sprang from, because my dad was a mechanic, I'd convinced myself I wasn't a liberal so much as an FDR, JFK, LBJ, working class Democrat. I certainly 
wasn't a libtard. And only been called one because I defended Obama after some birther went off on him. If I'd thought about it, I probably would have said nothing. But I was not one of those talk show hosts who could be one person on the air and another off, so I was pilloried by those who turned to trucking radio to hear only about hours of service, oil viscosities, and rear-end gearing. Though many in our audience came from non-traditional backgrounds, non-white, male, straight, or Christian, too many of the good old boys held sway. In Obama's second term, the rigidness and division only grew worse. When Trump came down that escalator, I joked, if you sent a bunch of truckers into a room and asked them to build the perfect president, that's who they'd come up with. By April 2018, I was out of a job due to Donald Trump. A few advertisers decided they didn't want to sponsor a show not sufficiently MAGA, and the new management cravenly chose commerce over art. First, Donald Trump came for my job. Now he wants my life. A pandemic is among us, and America leads the world in cases and deaths as a proportion of population. Every day comes a fresh outrage from this racist, sexist, immoral, incompetent, corrupt criminal who's only president because of roughly 77,000 votes in three swing states and a fluke electoral college win, aided and abetted by Roger Stone, Vladimir Putin, WikiLeaks, and the disinformation sewer of Breitbart, Facebook, Infowars, and above all, Fox News, Donald Trump moved into the White House with his grifter family and decimated the admittedly imperfect America he inherited. We are truly living in the upside down now. I look around and can't believe what I'm seeing. The economy in shambles. Millions of people out of work, falling through the cracks as they lose their homes after losing their livelihoods. Karens freaking out in public because they have to wear some cloth over their face to protect their fellow citizens. The Postal Service being destroyed from within. Disenfranchisement on a massive scale. America has become a bad joke. And now QAnon candidates are being elected to the House of Representatives. My full-on Howard Beale moment approaches. I'm as bad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore. But I'm not mad at those deranged dopes I grew up with back on Long Island who believe Satan-worshipping pedophiles are meeting in a D.C. pizzeria to eat babies. Those morons are lost to us, and I don't care about them. They're obviously mentally ill, and I'm not mad at principled Republicans who truly believe in smaller government and unfettered Second Amendment, yada, yada, yada. I can't even bring myself to be upset with the evangelicals and others who rail about abortion and the gays, etc. We all know what's up with them. Some of this opposition we can work with. Others will just gum up the works and will need to be detoured around. No, I preserve the full weight of my opprobrium for you friends who can't stop bitching about Biden. And now, Harris, for the sake of fuck, what is the point of your endless screeds about how they're not progressive enough or how disappointed you are? Does this also mean you won't vote for them when what we need is an overwhelming victory on November 3rd? Numbers big enough that this thing doesn't drag on and on, challenged endlessly by that lying sack of shit at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. That's what we'll get if the narcissism of small differences prevails and you continue crying about how you didn't get what you want so you won't give us what we need. I mean, really, fuck you. 
I love you, but fuck you. You're being a selfish, virtue-signaling asshole. Not standing on principle. Bitching about the Democratic ticket right now while America descends into despotism. A thousand fellow citizens die daily. Others are driven into economic ruin. Still more rightfully protest systemic racism. And the bulk of us face a mental health crisis like any unseen. is like bitching about not getting Cool Whip on your flaming turd pie. It's completely out of context and only serves to make you feel better. So I'll admit it, I'm not as progressive as you. You care way more about blah, blah, blah than I do, apparently. Whatever it is I believe and whatever can be further achieved by the most progressive presidential platform in history, one endorsed by Bernie Sanders on down, isn't good enough for you. So you'll continue to snipe, to bitch, to complain, to tear down, to put up your stupid memes, to impress upon the rest of us how insufficient it all is. Calling for Cool Whip, while the rest of us just want to stop eating shit. Listen to me, you wide-mouthed punk. We've heard just about all we want from you. Them so much. Oh, that was just warming up, baby. Just warming up. Aerial view here on HowNYC.com, where uh, I got a short story about my second visit to Florida that I got to squeeze into the next 25 minutes or thereabouts. I think I can do it. I think I can do it. I just got to set a good pace. I got to get a running start and set a good pace. And then keep that pace. And then just keep moving. Even if I fuck up. This is live, by the way. Doing this shit live. We'll do it live! So if I do fuck up, it's just like... It's just like the... What did they say on the back of uh, the Almond Almond Brothers at... Uh, wherever the hell that record was recorded? Fillmore. You know, where they said just like, an, uh, like a piece of leather. The imperfections is what makes it great. You remember that bullshit they tried to sell you? <sighs> a reminder in case I run out of time. This program replays on Tuesdays at 6 p.m. Eastern Time here on houndnyc.com. In between now and then, it becomes a podcast available at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, and all those other places. But hey, I have no ego, so who cares? I don't care if you're listening. I don't care if you're not. <laughs> Something very powerful about not caring. And New Hound Howls every Sunday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time. Followed by Crash in the Party. Doo-wop, chop shop of the air. Mark and Miriam. They got those doo-wops on vinyl. All right, this one is called... My Sharona Summer. Let's turn all this shit down. I begin with an impression of my mother from memory, ladies and gentlemen. Christopher! Phone! That is dead on accurate, by the way. My mother, pissed she answered, and it was for me, stresses each syllable in my name equally, adding extra volume to the last. 
I'm in the basement watching Six Million Dollar Man. Jumping up from the low-slung couch, I hustle over to the Sony and turn down the volume. Back at the couch, I pick up the phone on the wire spool side table my father salvaged from some construction site. Steve Majors silently tosses a vending machine in slow motion at a fleeing bad guy. Mom! I got it! After my mother's heavy steps to the kitchen and subsequent click of the upstairs phone, I hear whispering on the line. I don't know what to do. It's Glenn. He never calls this late on a school night. Or whispers. You don't know what to do about what? I was going to call earlier, and I picked up the dial and heard my father. Yeah? He was talking with another woman. Another woman? I listened. They were, they were talking like they... I don't know what to do. I saw Harvey, salt and pepper hair, mustache, big grin, cigar, captain's hat... Helming the cabin cruiser, Glenn and I scraped clean of barnacles that May while singing along to a cassette of the Beatles' 65. Sheila, tiny, fine-featured, bobbed hair, tanning on a towel on deck, shields her eyes and shouts toward him. Harvey, can you make the boat not rock so much? Sheila, what would you like me to do? I can't control the waves. It was a Sunday, and what my brother derisively referred to as the Jewish Navy was out en masse on the Great South Bay, apparently fucking it up for all the Gentile power sailors. Thirty or more modestly sized cabin cruisers bobbed and drifted over a small patch not far from shore. We also lived on the south shore of Long Island, but my family never owned a boat with a downstairs. When Glenn and I met in guitar class just prior to his bar mitzvah a year ago, we bonded over Cat Stevens and Monty Python. The first time I rode my Schwinn to his block, the newest in Lindenhurst, I marveled at one conspicuous absence. Where are the telephone poles? Everything's underground. I thought of those buried lines as Glenn grew increasingly upset. Do I tell my mom that you heard your dad talking with another woman? And then what? I can't do nothing. Should I say something to my dad? Like what? I don't know, ask him who the woman was? My dad was up in Scarsdale with his second wife. Stephanie hadn't broken up my parents' marriage, but we hated her nonetheless. She was only a few years older than my oldest sister. Would another woman break up Harvey and Sheila? What if he just makes something up? It's your word against his. Harvey was a lawyer. He was used to mounting a defense. And other women, apparently. So what do I do? I think for now you should keep it to yourself. I shouldn't tell Stephen? Why would you tell your brother? I have to tell someone. You're telling me. I can't believe it. Why did I have to pick up the phone? I felt guilty. If Glenn hadn't been calling me, he wouldn't have found out. Buried lines, all of them. Phone, utilities, no poles in sight on Wellbrook Avenue. The houses were new construction and big, with two-car garages with automatic garage door openers. When Harvey, having picked me up from our small ranch house on our modest block, replete with telephone poles, glided his new Lincoln Monarch into their garage without getting out, 
I felt phantom pain from the times our heavy garage door nearly ripped my arm off if I didn't let go fast enough as it sprung up. Glenn began to sob. I didn't know what to say. When my parents split, there was no discernible difference between dad at home and dad gone away. My father had been making himself increasingly scarce for years. He was always at his gas station or, when that failed, teaching auto repair in the Bronx. Home late, tired, angry. It got to where I'd purposefully avoid him in his belt or back of his hand. But Harvey was a constant presence in his house and seemed to genuinely love his sons. The more time I spent with the Katz family, the more I wanted to swap mine for theirs. Glenn, listen, it's going to be okay. Try to get some sleep, and we'll talk about it tomorrow. I didn't know if it was going to be okay. I had to say something, but the next day in school, Glenn had calmed down, though he looked like he'd been up all night crying. During lunch, we sat across from each other in the cafeteria, but he didn't want to discuss his dad. I can't eat. You want my pizza and jello? Sure. Since when does a fat kid turn down free food? Glenn passed his tray to me, grabbing his chocolate milk. He sipped it forlornly. Do you want to meet up later? Okay. Let's ride to the hobby shop. I need flat black paint. When we got to the hobby shop, I bought a bottle of testers from Doug behind the front counter. How's it going with that helicopter? It's going to be cool, Doug. I'll bring it down when I'm done. Doug had a few of my completed models on display. A big daddy Don Garlitz front-engine dragster, a Chevy van, a Harley-Davidson chopper. I'd gotten good at following instructions, cutting out the parts correctly, not overdoing it with the glue, and painting everything authentically. I even used real carpet in the Chevy van interior. I took great pride in my handiwork. Doug needed displays, so he'd cut me a break on Ravel, my favorite model brand and the most accurate, and would occasionally toss me a monogram, acceptable, or, God forbid, AMT kit for free. Glenn had parked himself by the large-scale slot car track and was watching a half-dozen tiny electric motors encased in plastic approximations of famous vehicles scream around the circuit. I put two quarters in the jukebox and punched up Radar Love. The combined noise screen assured we wouldn't be overheard. Everything seemed normal this morning. I don't think my dad knew I picked up the phone. That's good. A red Camaro hit a turn too fast, launched itself up a bank, and landed in pieces on the floor. Shit! Its driver hustled over to the Camaro. Doug admonished him. Clean up your fucking language or leave. Glenn, maybe we keep this quiet for now? See what happens? What else can I do? If I tell my mother, my father will hate me. And if you say something to your dad, he'll deny it. It'll be your word against his. Maintaining status quo was partly selfish. It meant I'd still be able to escape the Glens, drink Diet Pepsi after Diet Pepsi, eat anything in the kitchen, play guitar, and earn a few bucks babysitting Stephen. Stephen was 10 and babysitting him meant keeping him from anything on TV that might cause nightmares. I probably should have watched alone when HBO showed The Exorcist. Our plan worked for a month. Then the phone rang again. Christopher! 
I got on the line, and Glenn was crying. Glenn, what's up? My father, he had... My dad, he's in the hospital. Why? He had a heart attack. Shit. When? Last night. Did he... Is he... He's in intensive care. Is he going to be okay? I don't know. But it all came out. What came out? You mean the affair? Yes. And more. More? He was embezzling. I'd heard that word before. My mother mentioned it in relation to someone she worked with stealing from her company and getting fired. Embezzling? From who? Isn't that his law firm? How do you steal from yourself? He stole from my mother's family. All of them. Her father, her brothers, everybody. Harvey, turns out, was doing fake land deals. Selling investments in property he either didn't own or that didn't exist. He'd taken Sheila's relations for thousands of dollars. I couldn't understand it. Didn't he earn well? Was it money for the mistress? Oh, my God. After he recovered, Harvey was disbarred. He was also tried, convicted, and sent to prison. Sheila divorced him. I'm not sure if that was before or after she attempted suicide. This wealthy, successful family with their cabin cruiser, bottomless Diet Pepsi, HBO, New Lincolns, and automatic garage door openers had unraveled in the span of a few months. All my envy, all in vain. I didn't see Glenn the rest of that summer. Then he called. We're moving to Florida, the town of Plantation. Who names a town Plantation? I know. So you won't even go to high school here? No. Florida? Why? My mom has family there. We're packing up now. We'll be there beginning of July. I went down there five years ago. We were supposed to spend three days at Walt Disney World. Then our car broke down in Virginia, and by the time we got to Florida, we had one day to see everything, and it rained that day. My best friend, a thousand miles away. Who would I reenact entire scenes from Monty Python and the Holy Grail with? Or who would help me figure out the chords to father and son? Or lay side by side with me under a boat, scraping and repainting a hull, singing Mr. Moonlight. Maybe I'll come down for a visit. Really? Ask your mom. I'll ask mine. Mine was only too glad to get me out from underfoot. Sheila said, after we're settled in, Glenn. It'd be a year before they were sufficiently in place and I'd saved up enough as a Woolco stock boy and modern bakery dishwasher. I bought a round-trip ticket via Delta to Plantation's nearest big city, Fort Lauderdale. It was my first time on a plane. I ended up in the smoking section. Sheila, Glenn, and Stephen picked me up at the airport in a small station wagon. Sheila wore large sunglasses and seemed pensive, but no worse for what she'd been through. Stephen Entering puberty, his face covered in pimples, didn't make eye contact, and mumbled. Glenn, 
He wore a plantation football jersey with cats on the back, and I couldn't process how buff he'd become. I was still fat, but he was no longer the pale, skinny kid I'd last seen. Deeply tan and muscular with a massive neck, he transformed himself into a redneck football player. A Jewish redneck football player. It was balmy and bright, and we made small talk on our way to plantation. Windows rolled down, that song drifting in from other cars. Ooh, my little pretty one, my pretty one. When you gonna give me some time, Sharona? Back at their small apartment, I unloaded my luggage, spying a battered guitar case in the corner. Whose guitar? My neighbor's. I borrowed it. You still have your acoustic? No, I smashed it before we left Long Island. I hated that Epiphone. I note the silver Gibson logo on the case. Gibsons are what my favorites play. Jimmy Page, Steve Howe, Pete Downson, Tony Iommi, Mark Bolin, Mick Ronson. That Christmas, I get as close to a Gibson as I ever will when my Nana buys me a new white Ibanez Les Paul copy at the Sam Ash Music Store in Huntington Station. Plugged into my trusty Univox amp, that guitar and I massacre the hits of 1978, my cover band, Cobra. I point at the guitar case. What's in there? You can check it out if you want. I retrieve the case, unlatch it, open it, and find a cherry red Gibson SG Jr. with vibrato. It looks barely played. I try a few chords and a cheesy blues riff. A glorious plank of wood, the notes spring from the fretboard, loud and clear, even unamplified. I noodle away as Glenn fills in the blanks since last we spoke. So my mom has a boyfriend now. Wow, do you like him? He's okay, I guess. He usually doesn't come around here. What about your dad? He's still in New York, out of prison, living with his brother. We don't talk much. Your dad? Still in Scarsdale with Stephanie. Haven't seen him in a while. Something is off. Our easy camaraderie is gone. Glenn is guarded. Not yet grown, but most definitely not soft and adolescent like me. He's become a jock. Jocks were our kryptonite. Back on Long Island, we even composed a Simon and Garfunkel parody together. Summer's day in my Rock Camaro. I am cruising, looking for a chick, someone to suck my dick. I conquer girls and beat up all the guys. I am a jock. I'm from Long Island. An awkwardness settles over us, exacerbated when we meet up with Glenn's fellow football players. They tower over me. Some wear similar football jerseys. The biggest kid is nicknamed Mongo after Alex Karras in Blazing Saddles. I'm still obsessed with Mad Magazine and my guitar, but all these kids want is beer and pussy. The former had me puking up bush and hot dogs near the apartment complex's in-ground swimming pool. The latter leads to a kid losing part of his ear. The drinking age in Florida is 18, but Mongo looks 30, and no one cards him. He buys cases of Bush, the cheapest beer available, unmolested, and we chug can after can of the swill by the pool until we can barely stand. Everyone else goes shirtless. 
jumping in and out of the pool to cool off. Even in the brutal Florida heat, I'm not about to unveil my girth. I keep my shirt on even while swimming. Accompanying the bush beer are barely cooked, hastily scarfed hamburgers and hot dogs. The combination coming back up isn't unpleasant, but does bake hard in the sun. The next morning, Sheila rouses Glenn. Which one of your disgusting friends threw up near the pool? You have to clean it up now before we get thrown out. Glenn snakes a garden hose out to the pool and hands me the sprayer. I blast the reddish lump into the water for the filter to deal with. Then he says, guess where we're going today? The beach? God, I hope it isn't the beach. There'll be girls and me in a goddamn shirt. We're going to buy a car. Really? My mom is tired of driving me everywhere, and she doesn't trust me with the Chevy. Back home, I'd just gotten my learner's permit and bought a $300 1967 Mercury Cougar from Billy Kammerer. It's dented on every body panel, and the hood has to be locked down with a bicycle cable, or it'll fly up if you go over 30. But it's a massive improvement over that Yawa moped that nearly got me killed coming back from the modern bakery when I go sliding in the snow directly in front of Adam T.C.'s car. No self-respecting Florida high school football player is without wheels, so after breakfast, Sheila drives us to a huge Toyota dealership just off the highway. With down payment money from his grandparents and a cosign loan, Glenn picks out the cheapest two-door they have. A white Corolla with blue interior and standard shift. It has the only amenities that truly matter, air conditioning and a decent stereo. As we pull out of the lot, Glenn can't find first gear. You never drove a standard? Nope. You're going to learn now? Yep. We'll get killed. The Toyota stalls again and again. Glenn thinks the gear grinding noise is hilarious. I sweat bullets as fuming Floridians swerve around us, giving us the finger, while that same song takes on a prominent Doppler effect. Ooh, you make my motor run, my motor run. Got it coming off of the line, Sharona. Glenn eventually gets the shifting down. We go all over in that Corolla, including to a triple bill of Molly Hatchet 38 Special and the Outlaws in Fort Lauderdale. Pre-gaming in the parking lot with Mongo and the other jocks, we down Bush, tossing the blue cans wherever. When it comes time to enter the venue, Glenn hands me my ticket. I check for a row and a seat number, and I see festival seating. Wait, we don't have seats? No, no, there are seats. They're not assigned seats. If you got if you want a good one, you gotta be fast. Hey, didn't a bunch of kids just get trampled at a Who show with festival seating? Yeah, in Cincinnati, right? As Mongo leads us through the crowd to the massive doors, people part ways or are swept aside. Hey, asshole, stop pushing. What are you gonna do about it, fag? The doors open out and there's a frenzied dash for the best seats. I think of Cincinnati and those dead kids and run like hell. We end up in the front row for sub-skinnered Southern Rock in its Florida prime. I'm huffing and puffing, but alive. The next time I see Mongo and company, we're headed to mini golf. Of course, Bush Beer comes along and that song. Come a little closer, huh? Or will you, huh? Close enough to look in my eyes, Sharona. It wasn't Sharona, but some other teenage girl that spurs warring factions of teenage boys to brawl in the mini golf parking lot. 
I stand on the periphery, unable and unwilling to get involved. I'd been in enough fights with my own brothers and didn't fly to Florida in the smoking section to get punched. I don't even know these people. Glenn emerges from the pack, football jersey askew, disheveled. Get in the car! We run to the Toyota, jump in, and join a caravan of five cars peeling out of the parking lot. Chasing a small Dodge at high speed through residential neighborhoods, Glenn shifts furiously, swerving, shifting like he's been doing it all his life. Motherfucking piece of fucking shit! He pounds the steering wheel. What? What happened? Last thing I know, we were playing miniature golf. The chase ends in a corner lot where a high ranch stands up in expansive greenery. Before we skidded to a halt, car doors swing open and kids tumble out to pursue each other like wolves onto the lawn. I get out and stand near the passenger door of the Toyota, marveling at what's unfolding. All over the lawn of this modest suburban home, kids are beating the living shit out of each other. I focus on Glenn. He has some kid on his back. He's straddled him and he's repeatedly punching him in the head. Then, all in one motion, the kid grabs the collar of Glenn's football jersey, uses it to pull him down, tears the shirt, and bites Glenn's chest. Glenn screams at the sky. He pushes the kid back into the grass, leans over, and bites off a chunk of the kid's ear, spitting it onto the lawn. That's when I hear the shotgun. The homeowner, who I take to be the father of one of the hapless assholes receiving a beating, racks up his pump-action shotgun, points it upright, and yells, Get off my lawn or get shot! The plantation football team straggles to its feet. Glenn is covered in blood and grass stains. We get into the Toyota and speed away. I can't comprehend what's just happened. Holy fucking Jesus, we could have been killed. That fucking guy, he wasn't going to do anything. Glenn, he had a shotgun. Everyone down here has a shotgun. When we get to the apartment where Grateful Sheila is out and won't ask questions about the blood and the grass stains and the ripped jersey and the teeth marks, Glenn paces back and forth, applying iodine to the bite, muttering to himself, that was my only jersey, now I have to get a new one. Fuck, that was my only jersey. All I can think about is the kid missing an earlobe. After that, I spend the remainder of my time with the SG, quietly playing it badly in a corner, while Glenn runs around kicking ass and taking names. A few days later, he drives me to the airport himself. The windows are down on the Corolla, and again, it comes drifting in from all around. Ooh, my Sharona. Ooh, my Sharona. Ooh, my Sharona. Glenn drops me at the airport. It was good to see you, man. Yeah, you too. I get on Delta back to New York. Glenn and I don't speak again for three or four years. When he comes north to visit his father, he contacts me. I put him on the guest list to see my band, The Nihilistics, at CBGB's. We're doing a one-off reunion show. So are Glenn and I, apparently. We won't lay eyes on each other again for another 20 years. Then Stephen hears me on my talk show on satellite radio, and he tells his brother. Glenn calls our 800 number just as we're wrapping up our show. He's living outside Washington, D.C. with his wife and three kids. He works in management for a big cable TV company. Listen, I'm headed down to D.C. for a special broadcast we're doing. Let's get together. If you haven't booked a hotel yet, you're welcome to stay here. 
We make plans. I take the Acela down to D.C., arriving early for our 11 a.m. show with none other than special musical guest, The Outlaws. There are some different members, but when I tell them I'd seen them in Florida in 1979 and about the mad dash for seats after the Who stampede, they're impressed. That festival scening, man, we hated it. You sure are old school if you were there in 1979. As they launch into their final number, I think of all the times Glenn and I tried to play along with green grass and high tides in his bedroom. Stephen just outside the door, begging to join us. Fuck you, Stephen. Get out of my room. When we're off the air, Glenn and his family come and get me at the studio. We drive to a nearby Mexican restaurant and get caught up over margaritas and burritos. I'm spinning the My Sharona summer story, not realizing Glenn forgot the part about the kid's ear. Holy shit, did I really do that? Uh, yes, I'll never forget it. Glenn's wife elbows him. His kids stare, rapt, wide-eyed, with a combination of fear and awe. Then they ask to hear that song. Hey, if you stuck with me that long through that whole thing, I do appreciate it. Thank you. This show replays Tuesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time right here on thehoundnyc.com. Don't forget Hound Howls every Sunday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, followed by Crashing the Party. Mark and Miriam do op Chop Shop of the Air at 5 p.m. Eastern Time. This show available Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, and all that other bullshit. Stay tuned for more vintage hound programs, and I'll see you again next week here on Aerial View.